to walk through a city like that, to experience it, to understand these the way these layers of language each represent a moment of history. For some, it's a moment of violence, a moment of suppression. For others, it's a moment when the city really began to express itself correctly in that language. But you can't not feel the weight of history. In this episode of the Fourth Space Podcast, we sit down with Sherry Simon and Joanne Sloan. Sherry Simon is a professor of translation studies in Les Etudes Francaises and has been at Concordia University since 1983. In 2020, she was named a Distinguished University Research Professor, an honor which celebrates one's research career and recognizes the impact of their work. Sherry's work investigates cities and the intersections of language, translation, and memory. Joanne Sloan is professor of art history at Concordia University and in her own work investigates urban art and visual culture, landscape and aesthetics, and Canadian art since the 1960s. We've invited these two Montrealers, neighbors and colleagues to enter into a conversation. Well, congratulations, Sherry, on being named a Distinguished University Research Professor. So this is an opportunity to hear a bit about your remarkable research trajectory that has taken you from translating particular texts to regarding cities themselves as translational zones, to use one of your expressions. And it's also a trajectory that has expanded beyond Montreal and Concordia, bringing you to study a range of cities and putting you in conversation with scholars around the world. So I'd like to begin by asking you about cities. One of your books is titled Cities in Translation, and many other writings address what is evidently an important focus for you. So can you talk about how and why cities became so central to your work? You know, my work really stems from my own personal experience of living in a city, living in this neighborhood of Mile End. And um, um, I feel so privileged uh, to have lived in, to have had this city be a source of inspiration to me. Um, I grew up in a city that was very divided um, and that gave me a consciousness of the power of language and its ability to shape your perception of the city. I think Montreal is really so, I, I want to say unique, but I know there are other cities where language plays a similar role, but here it's really exceptional um, that we, we feel ourselves surrounded by language, languages that we're familiar and comfortable with, in also languages that uh, that we don't feel so familiar with. And uh, the tensions across languages um, are also something that, uh, uh, that are so important here. So I really feel that my, my research began in this city um, as my experience as a child, as my experience teaching. At, at Concordia, I was in a French department, an Anglophone in a French department. In my neighborhood, I was an Anglophone in a French neighborhood, um, it, bringing up my children in two languages. It's all been very organic in, in really the very best way. Um, and then I began to wonder if uh, Montreal was unique. Uh, was it really so special? And uh, that led me to look at other cities that, uh, um, that I've become familiar with uh, over the years and um, which have their own interesting and uh, um, 
uh, unique, they're, they're, they're special points of tension. They're not the same. I, what, what I learned is that the t points of tension and the way they're articulated across languages are different. Um, but, um, but elicit a similar feeling um, in the individual, the kind of a, um, uh, both an attraction to another language and the sense that that language you are somehow excluded from it. Uh, you just you just use the term points of tension and you've also in your writing uh, used the expression fields of translational forces and this is a very powerful image. So could you say a bit more about that? So I mean there are points of tension but how, what do you have in mind here? How do languages sort of become force fields in the way that you've suggested? So there's a whole category of uh, of um, cities that I encountered in Eastern Europe that are translated cities, um, where cities that have lived through periods of history, each one of them being marked by a language regime. So you have a city like um, Chernovitz in, um, in modern day Ukraine, but uh, was once part of the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire where German was the most important language. Then it's taken over by Romania uh, after the First World War. Then it's briefly occupied by the Russians. Then it goes on to become a Ukrainian city. Well, to, to walk through a city like that, to experience it, to understand these, the way these layers of language each represent a moment uh, of history. Uh, so for some, it's a moment of violence, a moment of suppression. Um, for others, it's a moment when the city really began to express itself correctly in that language. But you can't not feel the weight of history in those languages as you walk through the streets and as you see small traces. Um, in Eastern Europe, there's an expression, ghost signs, and they're traces of old languages that reappear under the cracked uh, paint or as a, uh, you know, a facade becomes uh, um, dilapidated and you see another language kind of peek out uh, from under it, you that really provokes a very strong sense of of melancholy, longing for those languages, especially in the case of those languages being populations which are expelled, sometimes expelled and sometimes uh, massacred or, or or murdered, as was the case for Yiddish in Eastern European cities. But on a let's say lighter note, we have similar things in Montreal where you see. A, 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 a an old style English sign uh, reappear from under the paint and Montreal and English in in Montreal in some ways evokes this melancholy and sense of you know of a yesteryear of another time um, maybe a milder time maybe a time when 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 tensions were not as um, as fierce uh, across languages but this idea of sort of ghost appearances of, of uh, languages is one that, uh, that I've always found very compelling. So here you're, you're referring to what happens in cities and in so, in so far as 
um, language gets mobilized as part of power struggles and social contestation and conflict. And I guess this model seems to complicate the more idealized view of a cosmopolitan city, one that is peacefully inhabited by urban citizens who might come from many different places. So I'm curious what you think about that. Is the concept of cosmopolitanism still a useful one? I always, of course, I love that word because cosmopolitan has this also has this idea of kind of urbanity and and uh, cosmopolitan was always you know unless you're talking about rootless cosmopolitans and then you were talking that was <laughs> that was a uh, an insult to, to to trotskyists by 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 stalinists who called them rootless cosmopolitans but i think we 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 moderns uh, admire rootless cosmopolitans and we like the idea of 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 the cosmopolitan city um what i found so interesting when i uh, in historically is that there's a period right after the first world war where so many cosmopolitan cities become national cities so take an example like alexandria in egypt which is a because of the certain because of uh, certain writers because of the writer kavafi because of uh, we have a, an ideal of 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 uh, of of this kind of urbane cosmopolitanism, uh, cosmopolitanism, and uh, um, uh, with the fall of empires after the First World War, with the fall of the Ottoman Empire, with the fall of the Habsburg Empire, many many cosmopolitan cities were converted into national cities, and this had so much impact on language. This was very. Uh, you can think of, you know, Constantinople becomes Istanbul, becomes a Turkish city. What had been before had been a very cosmopolitan city. Salonika, uh, which is on the other side of the uh, uh, of the ocean, uh, uh, just a kitty corner from uh, um, Istanbul, becomes Thessaloniki, becomes a Greek city, which it had never been. It had been very much a cosmopolitan imperial city. So when you situate this idea of cosmopolitanism you know on the historical in, in a chronological sense you see um that the cosmopolitan cities were a kind of an ideal and but they were very linked to um in this specific case they were linked to these empires and to imperial languages german for instance which had such an uh, um german we think of as a kind of a you know, German as a, the language of the country called Germany, but German was a cosmopolitan language. It was a really important language all across Eastern Europe um, for centuries. And then after the Second World War, especially, it got sort of uh, pushed back into uh, Germany itself. So cosmopolitanism is an ideal, but the ideal is colored by you sort of whose cosmopolitan language under which auspices under which um and, and in opposition to what kind of national tendencies so one of my favorite cities trieste was a very cosmopolitan city full of languages but it was always animated by it was part of the austrian austro-hungarian empire but always had this underlying tension of the italian cultural 
basin of which it was geographically apart, wanting to impose itself. So that was a productive tension for a long time until after the First World War, it became Italian throughout the German influences, throughout the Slovenian and um, Croat languages, because it wanted to become an Italian city. So these forces, I think, are always in tension. And we can see the same thing in Montreal, sort of what is, a, you know, the federative language, English as, as the language of a certain kind of of, of larger federation of, of, of cultural forces, as opposed to French, which for a long time was struggling to be a national language in contrast to, and, at, and these configurations are always changing. Amazing. So one of the things that does make cities fascinating objects of study is that they're dynamic cultural entities. They're constantly changing and being reinvented. But how we as scholars register those changes can be a methodological challenge. So recently, you've embarked on what might be called micro-urban studies. Your 2019 book has the great title, Translation Sites, a Field Guide. So can you talk a little bit about this emphasis on Kind of specific sites. So here you're not you're not talking about cities, you know, the identity of 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 cities per se, but really kind of focusing much more precisely uh, on on sites. So how how does that work in methodological terms for you? In fact, it was very much more of the same in in even though I was sort of I, I I had the idea of focusing on sites. I was really just you know compressing into the site um, the the feelings that I had as a traveler or my fascinations with specific places where languages come in, meet each other in interesting ways. For instance, Toledo, the city of Toledo in Spain, which just encapsulates so much of the trauma and the sadness of 1492, you know, all those centuries later, uh, a magnificent city um, which saw the expulsion of the Jews in 1492. Um, and yet, when you travel in this uh, city, um, you see the traces of that history. So you're faced with the traces of those languages and those realities that today meet each other at such odd angles. So you'll be in a... Um, in a synagogue which has been transformed into a church and hear the languages of tourists bringing back the history of that has been expelled from Spain so those centuries ago and understand that those tensions are still alive that 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 you know the the uh, the tragic history of Spain uh, which was suppressed for such a long time um, is still active um, in those sites. So language as um, 
as clues or leading you to um, those kinds of uh, very affecting. I think I was looking to um, to convey the kinds of emotions we have as travelers when we see those relics, those sites, those places that bring that recall um, the unresolved conflicts of history. So Toledo was 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 is perhaps the the strongest example that I have at the moment, and 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 just sort of focused on that one site, which had been a um, uh, a synagogue which carries the name um, of a church. Another one is, which I didn't actually experience, but that I um, find so interesting is um, the, uh, some buildings in Eastern Europe, like an opera house in Prague, which today has, carries a German, carries a Czech name, is a Czech institution. But when you, read a plaque or know a little bit about the history, you realize that that actually was a German opera house, which during the 1910s and 20s had the most um, avant-garde opera repertoire of all of Europe, more than Berlin or as much as Berlin and Vienna. In Prague, you went you went to the opera house in Prague to hear the latest you know, Wagner and the latest Mahler, of course, because, uh, but um, today it's a, it's a Czech institution and which it, as it should be, it's in, the, in, in that country, but which carries again, this unresolved memory of a time past, uh, uh, of a time whose history was suppressed uh, because of uh, the tragic events of the Second World War, but the, the memory persists in the tensions between the languages. It's to me, it's so interesting that, I mean, these uh, repressed or, or ghostly traces of languages can really reappear in these kind of fragments of the city in a way, right? So you're no longer, again, sort of talking about uh, the, the overall character of the city, but, but or in, you know, uh, obliquely, because this can, through some kind of material trace, can become evident. Yeah, and I guess the, the larger project behind that was the idea that, 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 that physical spaces contain these tensions and remind us how much translation, not only in these specifically tragic historical places, but in in our city streets, in today, in marketplaces, in bridges, in hotels, that these places speak of translation um, and of the ongoing translations that are part of all our lives. Not not only these sort of very very uh, you know poignant events, but uh, but also much more mundane, much more ordinary events. Uh, uh, and markets, of course, are such you know. Um, uh, uh, evocative sites of of languages you hear the the language of markets um and each market in each city will have its own character and how how in in a way how spaces are productive of certain kinds of language relations as well they don't just simply reflect they're not just places that 
contain languages, but they produce certain kinds of interactions, like as restaurants do, as 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 markets, or as this city streets when when you're talking about demonstrations or uh, moments where where a street becomes a focus of um, of of uh, revolt, which echoes around the world, as was the case of Tahrir Square in in Cairo, and. Uh, it, a scholar named Mona Baker has written about the kinds of ways in which translation was absolutely essential to that event as a political event because it was not only local but it was from the start a process of translation to talk to the to to involve the the, the entire world in what was happening there that uh has been uh kind of an amazing uh Set, set of questions and, and issues that you've shared with us today. So uh, thank you so much, Sherry. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd like to say just once, I'd like to say thank you for your wonderful questions, very thoughtful, and I really enjoyed the way uh, you you engage with, the, with, with, these, uh, with these issues. And of course, I enjoy, I think we share this interest in buildings and the history that buildings uh, bring about in your work in art history was was, was really uh, fascinating uh, to me. Uh, but the other thing I also wanted to just mention is, I, I wanted very much to mention, is how important Concordia has been to me and how grateful I am to Concordia for having given me uh, this career, uh, given me the possibilities to work uh, in a French department in an English-speaking university to have another wonky <laughs> uh, fit and uh, a very productive one. And uh, it, um, um, I started my career at the same time that our president did, Graham Carr, under the same circumstances. That is to say, with uh, uh, with um, LTA appointments, limited. We were both began as limited term appointments in the same year, I believe. Um, and we both uh, stuck to the place. Uh, Graham became the president, you know, that's just fantastic. And I've enjoyed really um, all the years that I've spent at Concordia. So I wanted to say thank you. And thank you to all of you. <laughs>